and welcome to 444 Fantasy Football's Most Accurate Podcast. I'm your host, John Paulson, and this is another bonus 2017 draft strategy episode of the podcast. This is number five in the series. If you haven't checked any of the other four out, I highly recommend that you do. I think they've turned out really well. Um, today, I'm joined by TJ Hernandez, uh, my colleague at 444. You can find him on Twitter at TJ Hernandez. Uh, he's the co-founder of Roster Coach. He's associate editor at 444.com. He's a co-host of uh, DFS MVP podcast. He's a purveyor of whiskey and a hater of IPAs. Uh, so welcome, uh, TJ, don't call me Tickles, Hernandez, to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Um, I don't know if it was like a super meta-level troll that you brought me on on National IPA Day, or if you even knew that it was National IPA Day. <laughs> I didn't know. But that's fantastic. But you did make up for it by by clearing out a whole week just for me, so I appreciate that. Oh, absolutely. Uh, that was definitely the uh, the best intro of anybody uh, so far on the podcast. I put the most work into it. Um, so these uh, series of podcasts, I decided to do these uh, about a month ago, and I wanted to get some of my favorite uh, analysts on to, to discuss what they're seeing uh, in 2017 uh, drafts. Uh, the, the MFL 10s are a great way to get your feet wet if you want to draft against real people with money on the line uh, without having to do anything in, in season. And I know a lot of us are doing those MFL 10s. You might be doing some other mock drafts. I know you, you're part of the Scott Fishbowl as well. Um, before we get into your Red Zone Expected Value series, your Offensive Coordinator series, which are so good over at 444.com, um, do you have any specific uh, to 2017 draft observations for this year, the stuff that you're seeing as you as you do your drafts? Yeah, as you mentioned, we've been drafting pretty much all year with uh, MFL 10s and whatnot, so I'm already 40-ish real drafts deep, but I, I think for the more uh, well-acclimated human beings, they're probably just starting to even think about entering any type of fantasy draft. So uh, this idea is kind of more of, of a theory of what I think going forward than what I've necessarily seen so far, just because we have so many... Uh, the, the population of people drafting right now is, is so sharp uh, relative to the entire pool. And I, I think that probably what we'll see come late August, early September is people uh, kind of overcorrecting for what we saw in 2016. And that was just a huge uptick in uh, running back scoring. And a lot of that just had to do with essentially good luck in, um, in touchdowns that went to running backs, but not an uptick in usage. And usually those, those big league wide trends have a pretty big effect on how draft flow tends to go. Everybody remembers um, the tw- 2011-ish time when everybody was thinking we should be drafting quarterbacks in the first round. I, I think probably some running backs that shouldn't be going early in drafts are going to be bumped up just because people are going to be chasing those running back points that won so many leagues last year. Um, we saw six running backs in the top 10 of PPR scoring for the first time since 2010 last year. We saw the top three spots made up by running backs for the first time since 2013. So obviously those guys in the first round, uh, those running backs, those are guys that deserve to be there, but I think people are going to be chasing those points and that will allow uh, the, the sharp drafter to really get some nice value at receiver in those middle rounds if people do end up chasing those running back points. I've talked with this uh, about the same type of thing in terms of the depth at the running back position uh, with 
Pat Fitzmaurice uh, as well as there being a drop off after the top 10 or 11 guys. Uh, you're talking more about uh, the position in general uh, being overdrafted due to uh, really a historic, not historically great year for running backs, but a very, very good year, especially in the last five or six years. Um, after like, two years ago, we had an historically bad year for running backs. So the truth is probably somewhere uh, in between. And, and I think you're right that some of these third round running backs uh, are a little bit dicey. Uh, the Isaiah Crowell's, uh, Ty Montgomery, Todd Gurley, Lamar Miller. Um, there isn't much distance between that group and maybe some of the guys going in the fifth or sixth round. Yeah, I agree. I mean, especially if you're in PPR leagues where you can target guys like uh, Woodhead's always been one of our favorite at 4 for 4 but um, guys like Theo Riddick, Bilal Powell, it's so easy to make up those points in PPR leagues, especially in a year where we're expecting those touchdown trends just to kind of snap back to what we would expect. It was it was just so out of whack last year. And people are going to see those touchdowns and see those fantasy points and I think kind of be drooling over the position. But there wasn't any change in usage. The usage actually went down. Down league wide for running backs, pretty much on the same trend line that that we've seen uh, for the last decade, really. So it's it's continuing to decline overall. But we just saw we we saw touchdown rates drop by a percentage that we haven't seen um, uh, drop pretty much ever, and and the running backs just scored at a really high rate. So. I completely agree with you. Those, guys, especially guys like um, Marshawn, who I know you've talked about a lot this summer. Uh, even guys like Christian McCaffrey, who I'm just not a fan of. I, I think there's so many guys in that group that are being overdrafted. Uh, so I'm just not excited about really anyone beyond, not even top ten. I'm really not excited about too many running backs beyond the top six or seven, really. So let me put you on the spot, though. Uh, you know, you have a pick in the first two uh, in the first round. Um, would you would you draft David Johnson and Le'Veon Bell, or would you go receiver with one of those two for, uh, first two picks in a PPR draft? Yeah, th- th- those are the two guys. I mean, they're still so head and shoulders above everybody else. And the thing about those guys is you're getting those nine to ten targets. That's just something we've we've never even seen even with like LT when he was getting crazy usage um, in, a, in a PPR league when you could get those catches you're basically getting a free touchdown from those guys every game. So them for sure. Um, after that, I think my next six or seven guys are receivers. That includes Zeke, even without the suspension. Yeah, the Zeke Elliott situation has really uh, weighted him down in terms of the first round. Uh, his He's still at four in my PPR rankings, but uh, I mean, I had him at three prior to that, but um, given the suspension kind of looming, you may not, may not have him the first couple of weeks. Um, it's a little bit dicey now to take him over Elishon McCoy or any of those stud uh, receivers in the first round. So let's let's talk about your red zone expected value uh, series. It's maybe you could uh, describe for the listener who hasn't gone through and read everything that you that you write at four for four. Uh, talk a little bit about how you came up with this. Uh, maybe how it's panned out for you in terms of last year. Did it? Did these players uh, regress as you expected them to? Uh, and then uh, we'll, we'll we'll start talking about position by position after that. Sure. So, uh, kind of the idea behind red zone expected value is I, I kind of got sick of hearing everybody lumping just red zone plays in, into one big group. Obviously, a 
a run play from the one yard line isn't the same as from the 20, but we have this arbitrary cutoff that we tend to reference uh, in football. So what I did is I calculated the odds of scoring on every single type of play and showed the expected um points or expected touchdown rate uh, of every single yard line and and then what I do is look at every red zone play for every player in the league and and find players that um, are outliers that scored well above or or well below their expectation and the reason I do it like that instead of just looking at something like touchdown rates and and comparing um, to either the league average or their historical average is is for the very reason I just mentioned Um, if for some reason there was a player that just happened to have a lot of plays from far away from the goal line but was still in the red zone his numbers are going to look worse so by by doing the breakdown by yard line I could then go back and look at their overall rates and see if uh, those numbers continue to be outliers and and then when we match all of that up we tend to get a pretty good idea of players that were just unlucky or, or really lucky and this is uh, my second year doing this this series using this metric and Last year, um, obviously these these guys are handpicked and they're they're pretty big outliers, so it's not a surprise. But everyone that that met the game threshold that played at least half of a season that I wrote up last year um, did regress as expected. Some were obviously more extreme than others, uh, but these guys that have outlier seasons they're outliers for a reason it's it's really hard to repeat these numbers especially for just looking at the rate stats as we go through some of these guys um obviously you have to put it in context and they, they can still put up really good or really bad years but um, not as good or as bad as some of us might expect Okay, so as we go through this, we're going to go position by position. I picked out one or two uh, negative regressions. This is, these are players that are likely to see a drop in their touchdown rates. And I picked out uh, one or two players in the positive regression. These are players that underperformed last year uh, and should improve their, their touchdown rates uh, this year. Um, so let's start with quarterbacks. Uh, on the negative side, I was unhappy to see this guy. Uh, the Tennessee quarterback, Marcus Mariota, I've got him at four, I think, overall at quarterback. I think he's going to have a great year. Um, there is some reason for concern that you can describe below. My argument maybe for him is that they invested a lot as uh, in the passing offense there. Maybe they're going to open things up for him. Also, he's just a very high point-per-game guy when he's healthy. But uh, uh, tell me why we should be a little bit cautious with Mariota. Yeah, I mean, and we're starting off with a guy that's a perfect example of of what this whole series encompasses and why you need to put these numbers in context. Like I said, just readers or listeners need to to remember that um, I'm focusing on specifically touchdown regression, um, not looking at changes in volume or, or situation. But Marcus Mariota is this guy. Now, this looks at just 2016 data, but for the his entire career, he's kind of just performed a little bit over his head. Uh, he's Last year and for his career, he's converted 33% of his uh, red zone throws into touchdowns. And that that's just not a rate that's sustainable. There's no other quarterback that has a touchdown rate inside the red zone over 28%. And Mariota's actually never even thrown an interception inside the red zone. Uh, he only has about 65 passes inside the red zone in his career. So that's still a relatively small number. Um, and last year he, he was really lucky converting his, his passes inside the 10 yard line. He converted almost 60% of those into scores and the league average, um, sits, uh, sits right at about 30, 38, 39. So he, he was well over average. Now he's getting, uh, Eric Decker 
to the mix. Um, he they drafted a, a receiver early, so his volume can go up and he can match his numbers. I, I the the caution here is just don't expect him to be so uber efficient like he has been in the past. That doesn't mean he can't reach that that quarterback four number uh, that that you have him at. And he is one of my favorite players. Just w- when we take all the information, you can't with some of these players like Mariota take his numbers and just necessarily extrapolate them to what he's done in the past. We have to, we have to pull in the reins on someone like him a little bit and expect him to at the very least drop to like Aaron Rodgers or Tom Brady levels and probably a little bit, a little bit lower than that. Yeah. The league average red zone touchdown rates, 21.8%. That's, is that correct? I, I see that right above his, his yes, name. Yeah, yeah exactly. And he's at 33%. So there's a pretty big, uh, uh, disparity there. Uh, so let's talk about a positive re- uh, touchdown regression candidate. I was happy to see this player's name here. Andy Dalton uh, from the Bengals. He's one of my uh, late round quarterback targets. Uh, got him, I believe, at 11 or 10 in my quarterback rankings. Talk a little bit about Dalton. Yeah, he's a guy that I'm going to have probably uh, more ownership than than any other player in the league this year just because uh, he's going so late, so those guys are going to be higher owned in my in my portfolio. And uh, just the quarterback position, if you have a late guy that you like, um, if you're in something like a 12 team league, usually if you're if you're the last one to pick a quarterback, you can let that ride forever because most people aren't going to to pick a backup quarterback. Uh, but Andy Dalton, he if we look at all the quarterbacks last year, he had the second lowest scoring rate uh, relative to his career average, both overall and in the red zone so uh, basically what that says is we have a, a pretty decent sample on what to expect out of Andy Dalton and uh, he, he just didn't hit those numbers last year a lot of that has to do with him just playing with uh, some some banged up guys he missed uh, AJ Green and Tyler Eifert for a combined uh, 16 games I think and those guys are going to be there he's getting a new running back in the mix um, and they just have a lot more 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 weapons around him so we should expect to see those numbers really improve for Dalton, uh, not only because of the injuries that he had to deal with last year around him, but because he just had some really bad luck to the players that he was throwing to, uh, a guy that's just super cheap, and that offense is, I think, they're going to be a lot closer to what we saw when Andy Dalton was on pace to be like a quarterback three or four than what we saw last year. Yeah, he, he ended up finishing 12 or 13, and that was with all those injuries. Mm-hmm. I think if you get a, if you get a healthy green and a healthy Eifert for a full season or at least 14 games out of each of them, uh, you, you could see him in the top five. And he did finish in the top five a, a few years ago, so he has that sort of uh, upside. We've seen it on the field. Um, moving on to running backs, a negative uh, regression candidate, Tevin Coleman. Yeah, running back's a tricky position because obviously we're dealing with um, with targets uh, and rush attempts, but luckily we do have the data to, to calculate all of those numbers t- together. So Coleman's a guy, when we look at all of his touches, um, he should not have scored anywhere near what he did last year. He, he actually posted the highest touchdown rate of any running back over the last 10 seasons to see at least uh, 150 touches and that's that seven plus percent touchdown rate overall is a number that just clearly isn't sustainable Uh, we've seen running backs score way over the league average uh, at the running back position the the average touchdown rate for running backs somewhere around 3.3 3.4% we've had about 30 running backs score over a four and a half percent touchdown rate and 
on average, their touchdown rate goes goes pretty much back to that 3.3% we, we see. So he's just a guy that not only did he score way more than we would expect from any player, um, that whole Atlanta team is just the a prime regression candidate. Uh, 35% of Atlanta's drives ended in a touchdown last year. That's the highest we've seen since Peyton Manning's 2013 Broncos uh, and 21% higher than they posted in 2015. They have a new offensive coordinator with Kyle Shanahan exiting and they just basically played over their head last year. So um, a lot of reasons to think not just Coleman, but that whole team is going to kind of uh, come back down to earth a bit. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about Kyle Shanahan's impact on the 49er offense a little bit later. But for now, let's talk about a positive regression candidate. Uh, this is Joe Holka's guy. Uh, also my kind of guy. Uh, I have him at 15. He's his, his ADP right now is 22nd running back off the board. Spencer Ware, there's a little bit of uh, doubt about whether or not he's going to be able to hold on um, to the, to the job there with, uh, with Hunt coming in and as the backup and um, you know, He's, his job's under a little bit of pressure there, and, and it's showing up in his ADP. Why do you why do you think uh, Ware is going to uh, score more touchdowns this year? Just the fact that he was efficient in the red zone a couple years ago, and and then came back last year and was very inefficient in the red zone is um, that's a good thing because we've seen him perform well in terms of scoring touchdowns before. And and you and I talked up top about how we we don't like some of those guys that we think are being overdrafted. And, and if you are avoiding those guys, uh, someone like Spencer Ware is a great guy to get in, in the fifth, sixth round. Pro, I'm guessing probably even later when, when we start getting to um, more casual drafters in the leagues. But uh, last year we saw over 73% of Spencer Ware's red zone opportunities come from inside the 10-yard line, and he still had a lot of trouble converting those into touchdowns. So unlike some guys where – they have low red zone rates, but it's because they're not actually from striking distance. Ware had a lot of opportunities from striking distance and just unfortunately wasn't able to convert those. And it's funny that we talked about Tevin Coleman because if we compare expectation numbers, um, Ware should have actually scored about two more red zone touchdowns than Coleman just based on their expectation from where they were getting their touches, what kind of touches they're they they were getting, but Coleman uh, had four more touchdowns in where. So that number just kind of goes to show how we can look at. We shouldn't necessarily look at something like actual touchdowns scored when we look at the expectation of these numbers. Uh, these players are are a lot closer than we think in terms of opportunity, but the general perception is the the gap's probably a lot bigger than it should be. And where is going with a pick sixty two? Uh, an MFL 10, so he's going near the uh, 5-6 turn. And then uh, Tevin Coleman's going with pick 64-65, so just after where in the middle of the sixth round. And his ADP seems like it's dropped um, over the last month or so as more and more uh, analysts are, are expecting uh, some sort of regression out of him. Uh, the one thing I would note on Coleman is that if, if Devonta Freeman gets injured, he has that top 10, top 5 upside uh, it, with a with a big workload and a lot of these guys that you are drafting in this range uh, probably don't have that type of upside. So maybe sixth, seventh round, it's not a bad uh, pick uh, if, if you're uh, expecting Devonta Freeman to wear down a little bit. Um, let's move on to the receiver position. Devonte Adams and Jordy Nelson are two uh, negative uh, regression candidates for you. It sounds like you're expecting the, the Green Bay uh, offense to regress a little bit. 
Yeah, this is another situation kind of similar to uh, the Marcus Mariota situation where, where the numbers say they're going to regress, but that do- doesn't necessarily mean uh, Aaron Rodgers can't be the, the QB1. Jordy can't be in, in the top seven or eight wide receivers. It's just that they were scoring it at such a high rate, even for an Aaron Rodgers offense, that like Mariota, you can't just take those rate numbers and extrapolate them to 2017, especially when you uh, add in Martellus Bennett to the mix. You don't know what you're going to get with Cobb, but he was uh, so atrociously bad last year that even if he um, is is half of what he's been in the past, he can steal some of the touchdowns from Adams and Adams and Nelson. But uh, Nelson, I, I have a little bit of a concern about just because he scored at such a high rate, nine percent overall last year. Um, but we've seen him score very efficiently with Rodgers. So his numbers are, at least his scoring numbers, were probably a little higher than we would expect. Um, but again, he has a, a track record of, of being very, very good when healthy. Uh, Devontae Adams is the one that concerns me. Um, his touchdown rate was uh, 9.9%, the furthest over career average for any player in the league. Unlike Jordy, he, he doesn't have that history of being efficient and came into the league, um, took a very long time to develop. And yes, he does have Aaron Rodgers throwing him the ball, um, but it, it was kind of, it looked like a lightning in the bottle season for Adams. Um, and as we mentioned, that uptick in scoring coincided with a, a outlier year, even for Aaron Rodgers, who, who scored a little bit above his head. Not crazily uh, above what we would expect for Aaron Rodgers, but um, higher than we would expect nonetheless. Um, I mentioned his, his touchdown rate, um, just no, no one scored higher than we would expect than Adams. And that's something that I don't think can be overstated because when we see those huge discrepancies in expectation is when we really get those big, um, bounce back either positively or negative, uh, negatively, uh, seasons. Yeah. I have Adams at 32 in PPR formats. I just looked and his ADP right now, he's a 20th, uh, receiver off the board with pick 40. So, I, I am not getting a lot of Devontae Adams in uh, in my early drafts. The other issue there with Green Bay is that you know Randall. You mentioned Randall Cobb a little bit there at the top. He he's not as bad as he performed last year. So if he bounces back, and then you have uh, if you get sixteen, uh, fourteen to sixteen healthy games out of Martellus Bennett, uh, that's another uh, creeper on the. Uh, uh, infringing on the targets that maybe Adams would otherwise see. Uh, Jared Cook was was a factor last year, but he was uh, injured much of the season and, and didn't really turn it on until late. Uh, so there are a lot of mouths to feed there. Uh, I think Rodgers is a great pick, uh, you know, in terms of being the number two fantasy quarterback in my rankings. I don't know that value-wise you want to draft him early. Uh, he's obviously a good bet to finish in the top two or three, so that offense is going to be uh, pretty strong. Uh Positive regression candidates for the receiver position. Um, if you could briefly cover both two guys, uh, Amari Cooper, who is not terribly high in my rankings, and uh, Tyrell Williams, who I'm a big fan of in the seventh, eighth round. Yeah, Amari Cooper is interesting because, especially in in the Twitter fantasy community, he uh, is very well known for not being involved in the red zone. But the Raiders don't just completely ignore him. If he would have scored as expected, he would have had four red zone touchdowns. And now that's not like uh, burning, 
burning everything down and dominating in the red zone. But if he scores four red zone touchdowns as expected last year, that uh, red zone narrative probably isn't following him around as much. And he's he puts up a season that um, that is is pretty dominant. Uh, and the interesting thing about Cooper is he's tied to a quarterback in Derek Carr, who we, we didn't mention, but uh, Carr's also expected to see some positive touchdown regression in the red zone. He got a little bit unlucky with, with his balls last year, and uh, I, I think that people are going to kind of take the, the lazy narrative and just see the no touchdowns scored uh, and think that Amari Cooper doesn't get involved in the red zone at all, but he has enough involvement in that offense in the red zone where uh, if it comes back to earth and he even scores close to the league average, which I'm assuming Amari Cooper, uh, from what I've seen, can at least be an average receiver even in the red zone, he has the potential to put up some really monster numbers. And uh, maybe uh, talk a little bit about Tyrell Williams. Uh probably starting I would think he did very well in the Matt Harmon's reception perception uh study uh stepped in as the wide receiver one with uh Keenan Allen injured last year uh Mike Williams has got the back injury it doesn't look like he's in any danger of of taking Tyrell's job uh Tyrell's clearly ahead of Travis Benjamin and um Dontrell Inman the other receivers there so it looks like he'll be the at least the wide receiver too there can you talk a little bit about Williams uh 2016 and what you're looking for in 2017 yeah I don't think people realize how involved Williams was in the red zone for the Chargers uh, probably because Hunter Henry scored so many of their touchdowns and uh they actually had a lot of turnovers in the red zone last year Philip Rivers uh threw a lot of interceptions but Tyrell Williams ranked 14th in the league in in red zone targets and that's not a number to sneeze at uh the reason people probably didn't notice is because he only scored two red zone touchdowns but a heavy red zone involvement on that team has always been pretty valuable we know how great Gates has been and Philip Rivers is just one of the, he's he's kind of Romo-esque in that he's been one of the most efficient quarterbacks of our era, but people just never have really taken notice. So I love having um, a red zone weapon tied to Phillip Rivers, and everything is just working in Williams' favor. I wrote this before the the Mike Williams injury, but now it looks like Williams is in, in danger of uh, maybe missing the season. Uh, mm-hmm. Antonio Gates is the oldest player that's ever played in the NFL. We don't know what we're going to get out of Keenan Allen. Uh, We hope he stays healthy, but obviously we can't bank on that. And then um, Hunter Henry had a great year last year, but uh, we'll we'll get to him in a little bit. He he probably scored a little more than we would have expected. So if there's one player that I look to on this offense and think that um, he has a role that I'm comfortable in, it's Williams, uh, at least for the pass catchers, it's Williams more than anyone. Yeah, he's going uh, with pick uh, 88, so still going in the early eighth round. I think he's just a great value there. He's going right around uh, John Brown, who's also a good pick, and, and Cameron Meredith. So there's three uh, wide receivers going in the early eighth, late seventh that uh, are good values, I think, in that, in that range of the draft. Um, moving on to tight ends, uh, we talked about uh, San Diego. I'm sorry, San Diego. That hurt, that's got to hurt you. Being a, you're not you're not you're a Raiders fan though, right? Yes, yes. Okay, but you, uh, TJ lives in San Diego. I keep calling them the San Diego Chargers, but the Los Angeles Chargers of Anaheim um, are, <laughs> are are have moved up here uh, to my neck of the woods. And Hunter Henry, I feel like he's being overdrafted. You have him listed as a negative uh, touchdown regression uh, candidate. So can you explain why? Yeah, I. 
I don't know why people are acting like uh, Antonio Gates is dead. I mean, yes, he's old, but he's still going to uh, command some targets in that offense. He's he's probably their best red zone weapon, at least historically. So I don't think Philip Rivers is just going to ignore him. And then Hunter Henry scored at just freakish rates last year. The numbers that put him up with better than... Gronk and obviously he's not Gronk. Uh, he scored on 15% of his targets last year. He only saw 53 targets um, and he ended up scoring the most red zone touchdowns in the league at the position. So we just can't expect him to maintain those numbers like the guys we've been talking about. Um, his overall touchdown rate, his red zone touchdown rate, the, the fact that he's not even their main red zone target puts a, a lot of concern around a guy that isn't going to see high volume uh, in this offense. I, I mean, even if he doubles his target numbers, uh, if we see that touchdown rate drop anywhere close to average, he's going to be a huge disappointment where he's being drafted at. It's, just, it's really hard to maintain what he did in his first season. And the other tight end we have uh, as a positive regression candidate uh, was maybe he's kind of a post-type sleeper this year because I, w- I, for one, thought he was going to produce quite a bit more uh, joining the Saints last year. Kobe Fleener, um, talk a little bit about why he, he might re- uh, progress to the mean. Yeah, I think this is one that it's it's going to be pretty hard to get people on board with. But, uh, I mean, w- we have to trust the numbers, and, and the numbers tell us that Fleener led the Saints in red zone targets last year. People probably don't realize that because – Six players on his own team caught more red zone touchdowns than he did. Um, but even after, even after performing poorly in the red zone, it wasn't a situation where he was getting heavy volume, um, underperformed, and then uh, just didn't get any more looks. He had nine red zone targets in the first half of the season, nine in the second half. So they kept going back to him. And I think that's especially important when you have a player that's tied to a guy like Drew Brees, those, those top quarterbacks, those Brees, Brady's Rogers, um, they really are picky about who they throw the ball to. And if, if Brees is going to keep targeting Fleener close to the goal line, uh, that's a guy that, that I want a piece of. They, they lost Brandon Cooks, and a lot of people don't uh, probably don't associate that with an uptick in red zone volume. But Cooks saw double digit red zone targets. They haven't added anybody of note, at least uh, outs- outside of the backfield, that's necessarily going to take any targets away. So you can make an argument, or at least uh, paint a picture where Fleener sees even more red zone targets this year. So if you can get the the top red zone target and Drew Brees offense to me, that's a pretty um, good investment, especially when he's going as the tight end 15 or 16, you can get him at the end of drafts or, or even get him undrafted and, and maybe even stream early in the season. So I would not ignore that red zone volume in this offense. Yeah. Fleener is at 14th uh, tight end off the board after Eric Ebron, Jack Doyle, two guys I'm, I'm kind of targeting there in the eighth, ninth round. And then you miss out on those guys, and then you're like, "Oh, I'm stuck with Fleener." Uh, the upside's there uh, with with Drew Brees throwing the ball, and, and as you mentioned, he was heavily targeting the red zone. But it's just hard to uh, get over the fact that he was a, a disappointment last year, going in the top uh, eight and then finishing fifteenth uh, in PPR, twelfth in, in standard. Um, so that kind of wraps up our red zone. Uh, 
discussion. I, there's a lot more information that TJ has published uh, on the website. Uh, there's probably two or three times as many players discussed in his articles. Uh, so be good, uh, sure to check that out. Uh, it'll might help inform you uh, with your rankings uh, at home and, and maybe uh, help you decide between a, a, a couple of tough, uh, you know, a tough pick between a couple of players. Um, it's, it's a good tiebreaker, especially uh, if, if he's seeing, uh, prime regression candidates either way. All right. So the other series that uh, TJ does that I love uh, so much, so much TJ is that the offensive coordinator series that you do uh, every off season, he tackles uh, uh, new play callers for new teams and tries to identify uh, the effect that they'll have on those, on those teams. And this off season, we had five new head coaches, eight new offensive coordinators. Uh, one of those uh, play callers that's that changed teams is Kyle Shanahan. Uh, but we only had three, uh, new offensive coordinators slash play callers that have actually uh, called plays in the NFL before. So uh, ha- actually have data that TJ can, uh, can look at. So uh, why don't you talk a little bit about Kyle Shanahan in San Francisco and what you uh, expect to, his impact will be on the offense. Yeah, sure. Before I get into Shanahan, I just kind of want to touch on, on the concept of this series and, and the reason that you mentioned those guys with the play calling experiences is important. Uh, it's, I think it's probably one of the more difficult tasks to look at a, a, a play caller or a coach and kind of separate uh, them from their players and what the impact will be. So this is a series that has um, evolved over the years, and I've kind of moved away a little bit from, from player volume just because that's usually going to be driven by uh, talent or how good or bad a team is. Uh, good teams generally going to run a little bit more if they're winning. And then obviously if you have someone like uh, like a Julio Jones, he's going to command a lot of the targets. So that stuff's kind of hard to separate from coaches. What I've kind of shifted to is looking at these situational uh, situation uh, plays where the play callers have the most influence. So looking at how they perform or how they react when they're uh, winning, when they're losing, um, or just when they're in, in neutral situations. That, that gives us a lot more information about, at least about a play caller's um, intention. And relative to other coaches, uh, we can kind of extrapolate some information that hopefully we can get some, some fantasy insight from, um, like a lot of studies or anything uh, even close to scientific sometimes there isn't a lot there but then there's certain guys where we see these uh really extreme noticeable patterns those are the ones we should get excited about because uh we we can usually glean some pretty good fantasy information um uh, shanahan is I, I mean i think everybody knows that shanahan kind of turned around this falcons offense last year or at least uh, was there while they caught lightning in a bottle and had this historic season. Um, but the thing that kind of stands out about Shanahan, at least as a play caller, and, and his play caller years are relegated just to a season with the Browns um, and his two seasons with the Falcons before he was kind of... Uh, he was kind of conceding to his dad, Mike Shanahan, and Gary Kubiak in Houston. Um, so Shanahan doesn't have as much play calling experience as people might think. But uh, what what we do have, as far as Shanahan data goes, is we have um, a data set that shows us that he's been very flexible with his teams. With the Browns, he obviously had a team that was very different than the Falcons, and he went with a, a very run-heavy approach. Um, Kind of on purpose, it, it, even in neutral situations, he was one of the more run-heavy play callers. And then when he went over to Atlanta, he switched to a slightly more pass-heavy approach. But re- what really stands out is um, 
he's he's liked to get multiple running backs involved, but he's also been one of the least game script dependent coaches in the league. And basically what that means is whether his team's winning or losing, he's stayed relatively close to what his game plan is. And we kind of think of a team like um, like the Bears last year. They, they were a team that lost a lot of games, lost a lot of games by a lot. And you're watching the game, especially if you're a Bears fan, probably thinking, um, why are we still running the ball? How are they still running the ball? That stuff's important for us, especially in fantasy, because if if we can look at a team um, like, like a Kyle Shanahan run team and uh, expect them to be losing big. We might not have to react to maybe like a start sit start sit situation um, with the Shanahan team because we know that if he's in a in a run heavy mode, he's going to continue to use those backs even if he's trailing out. Whether that's good or bad for his team, um, that's up for you to decide. But when making fantasy decisions, that's something that's very important to note about a play caller. Yeah, and I would say that bodes well for whoever is the RB one there. It looks. Like it's going to be Carlos Hyde. Uh, I was definitely down on him this offseason with uh, the draft pick of Joe Williams, the whole story behind that. But uh, early reports out of camp uh, sounds like G- uh, GM John Lynch has changed his tune on Hyde. Uh, Hyde is looking good while Joe Williams is struggling and uh, with uh, ball security. And then, of course, Tim Hightower is the thorn. Uh, in the side of uh, any rookie running back there trying to come in and make a name for himself. So, um, you know, Hyde is moving up uh, the rankings, the projections a little bit. It's still kind of a dicey situation, but um, based on uh, your your information here, TJ, with Shanahan, it does sound like even if they're losing, uh, they'll still try to run the ball with Hyde. And I think the other the other player uh, that I like a lot is uh, Pierre Garçon as the as the wide receiver one. He has it uh, has in line for a ton of targets. Uh, and it's not like Shanahan hasn't uh, targeted him heavily before. Uh, so let's talk. Let's move on to Denver with Mike McCoy. What did you, you see when you studied him? Yeah, McCoy's an interesting play caller because uh, when when he was in San Diego, if he had Ken Winsenhunt as his coordinator, which he did his first and last year, he actually delegated play calling duties uh, to Ken Winsenhunt. And then his of his two years calling plays in Denver, he had. Tim Tebow one year and Peyton Manning the next. So just some some really some really wacky splits for McCoy. Obviously, that uh, Tim Tebow team was one of the most run heavy we've seen in the past decade. Uh, and then it went back to Peyton Manning, where probably not as as pass heavy as you would expect, but definitely a faster paced offense. Um, still, actually had a, a pretty uh, decent run percentage, but uh, overall, uh, McCoy has slanted towards the pass when Tim Tebow isn't his quarterback. Um, nothing crazy extreme, but enough to take note of that could have an impact. The Broncos were. Basically, the most balanced team last year pretty much ran at a league average um, overall and in game neutral situations. So we could see them slant a little bit more towards the pass this year. Uh, uh, Philip Rivers' two most pass heavy seasons, at least in terms of pass to run ratio, came with Mike McCoy calling plays. So that's definitely something to note. I think Mike McCoy's biggest impact on the Broncos is going to be with the running backs. Uh, he's always used a, a running back rotation. Obviously in San Diego, uh, that's going to be skewed a little bit because when you have Danny Woodhead paired with um, whatever other running back it might be, Melvin Gordon or Ryan Matthews, uh, you're going to get 
would head in the mix. But even in um, 2011, when Willis McGahey was a Pro Bowl rusher for McCoy, uh, he still saw barely 50% of the of the backfield touches. So um, McCoy's going to try to get uh, multiple running backs in the mix. And C.J. Anderson's a guy that hasn't shown that he can carry a big workload over an extended period. If if Jamal Charles has anything left in the tank, uh, John, you and I have talked about this a little bit, uh, we could actually see him kind of in that woodhead role. I don't think Charles is a guy, even if he's healthy, they're going to want to give 15 uh, rushes between the tackles, so to speak, but he can definitely catch the ball. He kind of has that shifty ability that woodhead has and that McCoy liked using in the red zone. Um, so kind of those short dump off plays inside the 10 yard line. I think Jamal, uh, I think Jamal can have that role. And then I don't think Devonte Booker is going to go quietly. McCoy's uh, had three different running backs with at least 85 touches. So that doesn't mean Booker's necessarily going to be relevant, but 85 to hundred touches for running backs, nothing to sneeze at enough that could kind of get in the way of uh, CJ having um, a big season. McCoy has talked a lot this offseason about uh, getting the focus on that offensive line. That's pretty much all that's been coming out of Broncos camp is focusing on uh, the offensive line's run blocking ability, which they're pretty poor at. So I think he's really going to look to get the running uh, running backs involved, not necessarily uh, running more, but getting the running backs involved, whether it be on the ground or through the air. Yeah, as you were talking, I was just thinking Jamal Charles, Jamal Charles, Jamal Charles, Jamal Charles, because uh, he, you know, if you look back at his 2013 season, he does have a 70 catch uh, season under his belt. Uh, he, he bookended that with a 35 catch season in t- uh, 2012 and uh, 40 catches in 2014 before the the knee problem started. But uh, I've been drafting him a lot in the 13th round because he's just always there, and I'm just thinking to myself, well, even if he's 90 percent, 80 percent. Of, of Jamal Charles, that's still better than all these players that are uh, here uh, for me to choose amongst. And uh, he's saying now he has quote unquote zero knee pain. He told uh, Peter King that for a Monday night, uh, Monday morning quarterback column, uh, it looks like the Broncos want to get him eight to 10 touches per game. So that sounds like uh, it could be, you know, four catches, uh, six carries, kind of like uh, what uh, uh, Danny Woodhead saw. Uh, and, and when, and when uh, McCoy went to Denver, um, I think you and I talked about this. We're like, Danny Woodhead to Denver would be great for, for Danny mm-hmm. Woodhead's uh, value. And uh, they ended up signing Charles. And it's sort of like, well, if Charles is, you know, if Charles is Charles, even if he's a 30-year-old version of him with sore knees, uh, he's still a really good player. Um, and he's still capable of filling that role. So uh, this is looking like a pretty good landing spot for him uh, from a PPR standpoint, especially. And he got him in the 13th round. Uh, with some upside there, C.J. Anderson has not shown that he could stay durable. Uh, all of a sudden, he goes down, and you've got Charles with 15 touches and Booker with five or five to eight, um, and you you might have a top 15 uh, running back in the PPR PPR league. So uh, that's that's interesting. <laughs> yeah, and I I wouldn't say that you should completely uh, shy away from C.J. Anderson. We we've seen McCoy support two relevant uh, fantasy running backs. And I think even in the day and age of, of the, uh, shared backfield, people still are kind of hesitant to believe in, uh, that, that two running backs can be fantasy relevant, or at least, um, 
looking at two running like people always want to say one or the other but there can be two especially because McCoy's offered so many touches to to his running backs three times his running backs have accounted for um, over 60 percent of the team touches only three teams reached that number last year so we know the running back pie is going to be very big at the very least Um, who you like the most is kind of up to you I suppose yeah, and Anderson's going in the with pick sixty four, so you're looking at a sixth round pick for him. Uh Charles is going with pick one forty seven. Uh and then Booker is, you know, be, being undrafted or going very, very late. Uh so t- for me, the values with Charles, um just looking at who else is available around Anderson, you have Danny Woodhead, Bilal Powell, uh going after him, uh Spencer Ware going right before him. So I'm usually taking one of those three guys before I'm taking uh Anderson. Um and then finally, the third uh, new play caller, uh, Doug Marone in Jacksonville. You want to talk a little bit about him? Yeah, Doug Marone was on the Jacksonville staff last year, but he got bumped up to interim status uh, after week 14 when they fired um, Gus Bradley, I believe it was. Um, but Doug Marone has his history of a play caller when he was the head coach of the Broncos for two years. Uh, this is fascinating to me, this situation, because – um, Marone is a guy who already a week in a training camp when asked what, what he wants to do with this offense, he said if he could run zero passes, he would. Uh, and then you add in Tom Coughlin, who's uh, been looking over Marone's shoulder, I guess, at, at camp, and the fourth overall pick of Leonard Fournette. And this team is in all likelihood going to see a complete 180 of what we've seen in the past, uh, just this crazy pass heavy approach um not only just because they've they've been losing a lot but they've been a fat uh pass first team even with Bortles uh Marone's not going to allow that his he had really bad quarterbacks in Buffalo um EJ Manuel um Kyle Orton and another one that's slipping my mind right now but he did his best to hide those quarterbacks and I'm pretty sure that's what his plan is going to be um in Jacksonville we, we see the evidence he has the uh, the highest average running back touch touch share of any play caller in the league any active play caller and he has targeted running backs um as often as any play caller not named sean payton so even if they aren't running the ball a lot they're going to get the running backs involved. Uh, the one really interesting thing about Doug Marone, though, is even though he's going to be run heavy or at least running back heavy in his play calling, um, he's been one of the most, actually the most game script sensitive play caller in the league. Now, we only have a two-year sample, but it is still a big enough sample to um, at least extrapolate what he's going to do in various situations. And when his teams have got down big, he has abandoned the run. So his plan might be to uh, run a lot, but no other coach has abandoned the run as much as Marone uh, when his team's trailing big. And conversely, when his team's up big, which I don't think we'll see with this team a lot, he'll uh, go to the run as much as possible. Um, again, that doesn't mean to that's going to necessarily hurt the running back because even in those situations, he's still going to be throwing the ball to his running backs. But uh, I just think that's kind of 
something to take note of. I mentioned how Shanahan, if if you're looking at a situation where um, you're, you're wondering how you should approach because of a, we, we like to look at Vegas lines and kind of extrapolate data or projections from there. Um, Doug Barone's one that you can look to, and if his team is expected to lose by a lot, which they're probably going to be a lot this year, I, I think they have they're projected for the the fifth fewest wins in the league. Um, that data is going to matter. So for someone like Allen Robinson, where uh, most of the time he's probably not going to be the Allen Robinson that we want, but if they're in a situation where they are probably going to be facing a big deficit, that wide receiver is the position where you want to target garbage time, not quarterback. Um, and I, I think that we're going to see that a lot with this team, and Marone is going to uh, play into that game script a lot. And you're in a situation there with, with with the Jacksonville offense where you're hoping you can run the ball in the defense, which is they've invested a lot of money uh, in that defense. They were sick. They allowed the six fewest yards last year, uh, but they still gave up uh, 400 points, which is the eighth most uh, in the league. And I think I, this is, I have no actual data to back this up, but I think that has a lot to do with uh, Blake Bortles interceptions, uh, putting them in bad situation, pushing that defensive unit in bad situations and a short field. And, and they're doing their best to try to, uh, to stop the offense, but uh, not having a, t- a ton of luck when they're kind of constantly put behind the eight ball. But if they're able to uh, kind of do a run control a ball control offense with a, with a solid defense, you might see the, the Jacksonville defense uh, thrive as well from a fantasy standpoint. And, Leonard Fournette, I think, is the is the big uh, winner if this all goes to plan because he's likely to see 300 plus touches and uh, end up with a top 15, top 10 uh, fantasy season if this all goes to plan. I I would do wonder if when things go south and they ha- he has to abandon the game plan, uh, is he going to bring in T.J. Eldon uh, or Chris Ivory or something instead of leaving Fournette on the field as a pass protector, pass reception uh, guy out of the backfield? You know. Yeah, one one note on that is um, Fournette did rank in the 84th percentile in college market share. So um, I, I don't know much about his his uh, pass protection ability, but he definitely does have some pass catching chops. He he showed that in college, and like I said, Marone um, is going to target his running backs a lot. One other thing about Marone that that I forgot to mention is. Uh, one other number that I've looked at is pace, and he's actually ran the, the fastest pace offense of any play caller. Again, we have just two seasons of play calling data, but his 2013 Bills uh, were the fastest pace team in the last decade, not coached by Chip Kelly. Uh, wow. So that that has some uh, fantasy value as well, especially um, definitely in start sit decisions, but especially if you're looking at uh, if you're playing DFS and you're really looking for those really thin edges. Um, if they're playing a good offense and you know, a couple more plays or, or 10 more plays in a game, uh, that can really make a difference if you're playing uh, big DFS tournaments or just making really close weekly decisions. Great stuff, TJ. Uh, thanks for coming on. Uh, you can find TJ at TJ Hernandez on Twitter. Uh, his work's at 444.com. He's also going to be contributing uh, quite a bit of work to SI.com over the coming month. Uh, and you can also find him uh, with Chris Raybon as a co-host on uh, DFS MVP podcast. Thanks. Thanks so much for coming on TJ. Always a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Great, great stuff. I encourage everyone to to go to the site and check out these articles. Um, it's, if you're in a tough league or even if you're in an easy league, it's great to have this edge and uh, definitely provide some clarity on some of these players that are 
uh, kind of unclear. So uh, we'll see you next time on 444 Fantasy Football's Most Accurate Podcast.